Travis Kalanick's relentless ambition, how the Uber co-founder built a $68 billion empire. Originally published July 9th, 2023. Travis Kalanick is most well known for being the co-founder of Uber, one of the most innovative and disruptive startups since its founding in 2009, and a company that was worth tens of billions of dollars by the time of his departure. I remember the early days of using Uber, and it felt like magic being able to tap on your phone and have a car show up in five minutes. As of this writing, I haven't owned a car in more than five years, even while living in Los Angeles, largely due to the availability of Uber. But it's also a company with a past that many would like to forget, riddled with scandals, PR nightmares, and a history of toxic culture that's been written about publicly ad nauseum. The story of the company was even made into a book in a Showtime series called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Today's deep dive focuses on Travis himself while telling the broader story of Uber until his departure, with many of the details and insights most people haven't heard about. Travis, in many ways, has had to pay for his sins at Uber. Many people would say not enough, and yet, I don't think Uber could have existed without him. Furthermore, few people could have accomplished what he did. This is what I find most fascinating. So, who is Travis Kalanick? What shaped him? And how did he build a company that disrupted an entire industry, one with highly entrenched incumbents who were incentivized mightily against change? Let's get to it. Early days. Travis was born in Northridge, California in 1976. His dad was a silver engineer, and his mom was an ad sales executive. Growing up, he mentioned that his mom told him every day, do your best, and that he could do anything or be anything he wanted. He certainly seemed to take that to heart, as he was highly ambitious from an early age, and, as he would later say, he never lacked self-belief. In the sixth grade, Travis started learning how to code. By high school, he was selling Cutco knives, even making $20,000 in one summer. Those two experiences, learning to code and selling knives, set the foundation for later companies he'd start, where his variety of skill sets, combined with his tenacity, allowed him to succeed. Prior to starting college, Travis scored 1580 out of 1600 on his SAT, giving him the pick of essentially any college he wanted. He chose to stay near home, attending UCLA, where he started his f- first company at 18 years old, partnering with another student's father to create an SAT prep company called New Way Academy. The first student Travis tutored improved his score by 400 points, and they were off to the races, with his business partner finding more students to tutor through the Korean church, where there were many parents eager to have their kids improve their scores. One summer while at UCLA, Travis actually did an internship at BCG. It didn't go well. He was basically walking around like he was a partner, but he was only a summer associate. He was that guy. And the entrepreneurial bug hit him hard. It was clear that he wasn't meant for the likes of a consulting firm. He was meant to build companies. The next company, it was a memorable experience to say the least, and it built in him a view of venture capitalists that would stick with him for years to come. Scour. Travis dropped out of UCLA in 1998 to work at a company called Scour with a classmate, Vince Busum, and a few others. Travis claims he was a co-founder while others dispute this, but nonetheless, it was Travis and a handful of others working on the company that was doing peer-to-peer file sharing and was described as a multimedia search engine. The role Travis adopted was that of sales and marketing, and while the company grew, They were running out of cash when they got connected through a friend to two venture capitalists, 
Ronald Burkle, and Michael Ovitz. For those who don't know them, these were two heavy hitters. Burkle is a billionaire private equity investor, and Ovitz is a town agent who started CAA and was at one point in time arguably the most powerful man in Hollywood. Travis and his business partners were obviously not nearly as experienced, just a bunch of 20-somethings who hadn't really built much yet, and they badly needed the funding. So they agreed to an investment deal that gave up to 51% of the company in common stock, evenly split between Burkle and Ovitz. But it had a 30-day closing term, so Travis and his partners wouldn't receive the money just yet. They only had an agreement to eventually get funding, one that came with a no-shop clause so they couldn't talk to other investors in that time. As time went on, while they were desperately running out of money, Burkle and Obitz were wavering on their terms and wanted better ones, knowing they were negotiating from a place of strength, and Scour had no choice but to search for funding elsewhere. Three days after they did so, Scour got sued for breach of contract. That's right, Burkle and Michael sued Scour to get them to take their money. As the drama unfolded, Ovitz distanced himself from Scour, and then in 2000, the hammer really dropped. The Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA, the Record Industry Association of America, RIAA, and the National Music Publishers Association, NMPA, also brought a lawsuit against Scour. And the size of the lawsuit? $250 billion. Yes, that's right. Billion with a B. They alleged that Scour had infringed on copyright. Scour had no choice but to declare a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They paid the associations $1 million in cash, turned the technology off, and sold their company in a courtroom in a matter of 20 minutes. But with this next company, Travis would get his revenge. Red Swoosh. Red Swoosh, Travis's next company, was started in 2001 with his co-founder Michael Todd and was another peer-to-peer file-sharing company that turned the 33 litigants that sued him into his customers. How sweet that must have been for Travis. Red Swoosh's technology would eventually be on well over 100 million computers, but that would take years of hard work to get there and was, as Travis described, four to five years too early. It was also a brutal experience for Travis, constantly getting rejected by potential investors and customers, while in his words, getting 100 no's per day. The company was constantly running out of money, and he didn't take a salary for the first four years. And he had to move back in with his parents for a year to keep the company going, all without knowing if the company would survive. In April 2006, Travis took his team to Thailand for a while to save money by living in a place with a lower cost of living. All of this in an effort to stay alive. Fortunately for them, Mark Cuban, the billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, ended up investing at a critical moment. In six years, Travis raised about $1.7 million for Red Swoosh. And in 2007, he sold the company to a competitor, Akamai, for around $19 million, netting Travis a few million dollars. Years later, he described why he ended up selling Red Swoosh when he did. The reason I sold my last company was because I'd gotten to a point where it was flat forever. Like, not just flat, it was at or below the x-axis, which was at zero, and there was this little blip. But it was like, I've seen this before, and it goes back to zero. And I said, if this is a blip and it goes back to zero, because I was about to raise more money, I said, I will literally go into the funny farm. I'll literally lose my shit. And when you are literally talking about, I will lose my sanity, like for real, That's when it's time to move on. 
While others in the industry would describe this outcome later on as a single as compared to the billion dollar outcomes VCs are looking for, this was a home run for Travis after years of hard work and him being on the verge of a mental breakdown. After this experience, fighting tooth and nail for six years at Red Swoosh and four years at Scour, he needed a break. Flush with cash from the sale of Red Swoosh, Travis started angel investing, traveling the world, and putting himself in a position to start what he's now known for today, Uber. The Jam Pad. After selling Red Swoosh, Travis got a house in the Castro District in San Francisco. He started angel investing and often used his house, which he called the Jam Pad, as a place to talk through ideas with founders and help them solve problems, day or night. The house even had its own Twitter account, which is linked at justgogrind.com. It was all about ideas, building things together, and finding ways to solve problems. In one talk Travis gave to a group of entrepreneurs, he gave them some advice on hiring. Write a truly inspired blog post, like truly inspired, that describes the company, the mission, the vision, how it's amazing, why you're amazing, and why it's going to be amazing if that candidate comes and works with you. Travis also started a blog and even wrote a blog post back in March 2009 about raising a seed round, which is again linked to justgrind.com. And he also helped a lot of companies when the VCs wanted to get rid of them. He made sure that didn't happen, which is interesting for later in our story. He talked about one instance in particular. VCs like to kill founders. It's crazy. Like I said, I'm in this company. The revenues are shooting through their freaking roof. Insanely amazing senior management team. Everybody loves the CEO. Why are we getting rid of them? I don't understand. Can you please tell me why we're doing that? And he views himself at this time as a curator of entrepreneurs driven by his curiosity. I have an insanely curious personality, so I'm curious about ideas, and no ideas are bad ideas. Some are better than others, though, and I'm just curious, and I bring that curiosity to the table, and I think that makes me who I am, but that makes me a pretty decent entrepreneur. In the same talk above, he mentions how he's a numbers guy, something that would certainly help him in his next venture. I'm Rain Man analytical. I'm a numbers guy to the demise of myself sometimes. Some people really get, you know, I'm counting toothpicks like on the floor. I am watching all the numbers and just cranking Excel sheets, SQL queries, the whole nine. I really love numbers. I feel that God is in the details and I really dig deep there. Travis ended up angel investing in about 10 companies, basically investing all the money he could. And how did he select his companies? He was primarily looking for two things. One, was this an entrepreneur that he could see himself starting a company with? And two, was the idea they're working on exciting to him, disruptive, and innovative? Fun fact, he was written out of a scene in the social network where in real life he met Mark Zuckerberg for the first time. Here's him describing it. Social network, who saw that movie? Most people, yes? Okay, I was written out of a scene and replaced by an Asian woman. Okay, the meeting where Sean Parker meets Zuck in the restaurant? Sean and I took Zuckerberg out to dinner, FYI. And Sean, after that dinner, was like, eh, Facebook, meh. I thought it was amazing. At the time, I would either email or call my girlfriend anytime I met somebody awesome and amazing because I don't have any money to invest just to sort of like put it on the record. I called my girlfriend at the time, right after the dinner, and I said, I just met the smartest 20-year-old on the planet. During his time angel investing from the jam pad, whenever Travis was asked by friends the typical, how's it going? All he could speak to was the companies he invested in, not his own. And he missed being in the game. He was itching for something of his own again. Soon enough, with the help of Garrett Camp, he'd be back in the game. Starting Uber. 
Travis and Garrett Camp, who had sold Stumblepon to eBay in May 2007 for $75 million, were talking about ideas at Le Web, a technology conference in Paris in late 2008. They were jamming on ideas every night. All lifestyle businesses, as Travis would describe, with one problem that stood out. Jamming on ideas, rapping on what's next what entrepreneurs do. Garrett and I would get some good music, good drinks, and jam until 5 a.m. Garrett's big idea was cracking the horrible taxi problem in San Francisco. Getting stranded on the streets of San Francisco is familiar territory for any San Franciscan. Garrett's MO fits the Uber brand. He likes to roll in style, comfort, and convenience. His over-the-top idea in Paris that winter started as a limo timeshare service. The thought was to buy 10 S-classes, hire 20 drivers, and rent a parking garage so that they could create a service that allowed you to press a button on your phone and get a car. Travis was against owning the assets, but liked the idea of on-demand car service. As Travis would say, Garrett brought the classy and elegant components to the company, and Travis brought the efficiency. That word, efficiency, comes up again and again when you research Travis. He obsesses over it, something that allowed Uber to succeed. But the company wasn't called Uber initially. It was called Uber Cab. And neither Travis nor Garrett wanted to run the company. Here's Travis. By March of 2009, Garrett started working in earnest on figuring out what this iPhone app would look like. The prototype was coming along, but it was still a side project. Garrett had spun out StumbleUpon and was now CEO again. By mid-2009, Garrett began a charm offensive for ramping up my involvement. And by that summer, I joined on as Uber's chief incubator. My job was to temporarily run the company, get the product to prototype, find a general manager to run the operation full-time, and generally see Uber through its San Francisco launch. This approach seemed to fit pretty well. I wasn't yet ready for a full-time gig, still recharging from a 10-year non-stop startup life in P2P technology. And we both thought the business was going to be pretty low-tech, mostly operational. Little did we know. Pretty low tech? Oh, how wrong Travis would end up being. They did their first test of their product in January 2010 with three cars in New York and a few people using it. It was essentially a black car service with the push of a button. In the early days, Garrett was handling the consumer side of things and Travis was figuring out the supply side, getting drivers on board. Travis filled out an Excel sheet and started dialing for dollars. He went to Google and typed in SF limousine or chauffeur. With the first 10 guys he called, three hung up, a few listened for 45 seconds and hung up, and three agreed to meet, which for cold calling was actually a high number. It was encouraging and they knew they had something. Travis continued to work with Garrett and his friend Oscar, but they needed a general manager because, like I mentioned, they weren't looking to run the company full-time themselves. So Travis tweeted this out. This is a tweet from January 5th, 2010. It is linked at justforgrind.com. Looking for entrepreneurial product manager, biz dev killer for a location-based service. Pre-launch, big equity, big peeps involved. Any tips? And he got an answer. Here's a tip. Email me, graves.ryan at gmail.com. Replying to that tweet, plus, you know, years of hard work and all that, would eventually make Ryan Graves a billionaire. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, my friend. Ryan started on March 1st, 2010, and he launched in San Francisco on May 31st, 2010 with Ryan as CEO. In the beginning, you needed a special code to get access, and Travis was constantly getting texts from friends asking for a code. Of course, it quickly evolved from that. 
And along with Garrett, they'd invite friends to the platform with Ryan attending tech events to sign up more people. In October 2010, UberCab closed an angel round, but even with the previous successes of Travis and Garrett, it was a challenge. Here's Travis. When we first launched, it wasn't easy getting our angel round. People thought we were crazy. Limos and SF? What? But it took off. The $1.25 million round would be led by first-round capital and also include lowercase capital, founder collective, and a number of angel investors. Ten months after Ryan started as CEO, Travis stepped in and took over the position in December of 2010, not long after UberCab had gotten a cease and desist letter on October 20th from the San Francisco Metro Transit Authority and the Public Utilities Commission of California. Travis relishes the cease and desist letter because he knew it confirmed they were innovating and he was up for a challenge. When that happened, it actually for me felt like a homecoming, like I'm home now that special place that like, I know how to operate in this world. Within five days of receiving that letter, UberCab had changed its name to Uber to avoid any appearance of being a taxi company. And they paid a pretty penny for it, buying the uber.com domain from Universal Music Group for 2% of the company, shares which Uber later bought back for $1 million. I'll bet UMG regrets that. A few months later, Travis would secure a critical investment providing a stamp of approval for Uber. Because they're the best. In February 2011, Travis raised $11.5 million from Benchmark Capital, adding to an investor base that includes the likes of first-round capital, lowercase capital, and a number of notable angel investors. The round valued Uber at $60 million. Asked why he chose Benchmark, he gave a simple response. Because they're the best. In an interview in August of 2011, Travis describes his early ambitions. We want to have more Ubers in a city than there are taxis. We are going to dominate every city that we go into, and so you have to find the right price point to make that happen. In the same interview, he was asked about Uber's future expansion, offering up these thoughts. So first, let's kill the transportation thing. Let's crush it. Let's do that big. And it means basically I have two things when it comes to that. One is replication, like let's replicate to every major city in the world. It's not just US, it's everywhere. We're going to be in Europe, we're going to be in Asia. And it's clear from the start he was in it to win. There's a couple of folks out there, right? I mean, it's a good idea. There are going to be competitors and we will kill them. The opportunity for them is massive and Travis knows it. He explains just that when talking about the potential for Uber in New York City. You have pain points spread across the city at different times. I think if you just added those pain points, you're talking about a half a billion dollar market. That's where you start. But then you talk about the shift change in New York. Then you talk about rain. Then you talk about Brooklyn. Each of these problems is like a hundred million dollar problem. In August 2011, Uber was in SF, Seattle, and New York City with expansion plans the next few months to Chicago, Boston, and D.C., by New Year's Eve in 2011, they'd be in eight cities, and at this point, they already had some drivers who were making $3,000 per week driving with Uber. To grow the number of drivers, Uber gave them iPhones, essentially leasing them for around $40, and Travis built a team to make sure they could handle the logistics. When you have the logistics, the logistics fabric underneath it, and you have, I mean, we're a math company. I have a whole division in my company called the math department. Like, we have PhDs. We have a computational neuroscientist. 
a rocket scientist, a nuclear physicist, crunching numbers so that when you push the button, the car is right freaking next to you because we knew he were going to push it or somebody was. Late that year, they also raised a $37 million Series B by Menlo Ventures, with Jeff Bezos and Goldman Sachs investing around, along with Benchmark Capital, and more angel investors like Jay-Z, Ari Emanuel, and Ashton Kutcher. This round valued Uber at more than $330 million. It's a round of funding that Andreessen Horowitz, one of the best venture capital firms, missed out on. Here's a piece from Vanity Fair. The next round, in October of 2011, attracted interest from the best-known venture capitalists in the world, Netscape co-founder Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. He was Kalanick's preferred investor for the round, a situation Kalanick hoped to make even better by selling just over 12% of the company a $375 million pre-money valuation. For that princely sum, he wanted Andreessen to join the board of Uber. This is where the accounts between the entrepreneur and the firm differ. Kalanick thought that Andreessen Horowitz had agreed to his terms and said he was surprised when he got an email from Andreessen asking him to dinner. There, Andreessen told Kalanick that the valuation was too rich for the financials at the time. Only 9,000 customers, a $9 million run rate, a measure of projected performance, and a $1.8 million in revenue. He was then offered $220 million by Andreessen as a new valuation. Kalanick countered, but the firm stuck to its lower price. There was another dinner days later with Andreessen, and by then, Kalanick seemed to have folded, agreeing to accept that deal on an email exchange. But he had not. Working now from the Founders Conference in Ireland, the entrepreneur decided he could not accept the lower figure and asked for a larger one. Andreessen Horowitz refused to move higher. The deal was finally dead, but there seemed to be no hard feelings, with Kalanick and a firm partner having drinks at Dublin's Shelburne Hotel afterward. While this kind of wrangling is not uncommon in Silicon Valley, it was devastating to Kalanick, he recalls. It was a big momentum deal, so when the bottom comes out from under it, you have to go back to the well and start the whole thing, he says. The next year would mark another big step for Travis and Uber. UberX. In July 2012, Uber launched UberX, a service 35% cheaper than their black car service. By October 2012, more than half of their employees are outside of SF. The same month, they launched Uber Taxi in SF. Also, Uber is in 17 cities by this point, most recently adding Sydney, Australia, and Minneapolis. 50% of all people who have ever ridden Uber have ridden in the last 30 days at this point, and the average customer is paying $105 per month. Uber at this point has a 26% month-over-month growth in the last 16 or 17 months, and they were pretty big already, which makes this even more impressive. Before Uber launched, there were about 600 town cars in San Francisco. By this point in 2012, there were more than that dedicated only to Uber. In late 2011 and into 2012, they also started rolling out Uber internationally, starting in Paris and expanding into Toronto and London by this point. And they were finding creative ways to draw attention to Uber. On Valentine's Day one year, they distributed tens of thousands of roses to thousands of drivers, and every woman who got in a car after 4 p.m. got a rose. Here's a tweet from Jessica Verrilli. Uber is delivering roses today. Love this. Delightful user experience. Also foreshadows how they could own on-demand delivery service. That's from February 14th, 2013. In D.C. on President's Day, they did an Ubercade, like a motorcade, which consisted of an Escalade, a town car, and another Escalade, with town flags all the way down. 
And one in 20 people who pushed the button to get a ride that day got the Uber K to show up with drivers that had earpieces in as well, making them look like the secret service. In Austin, for South by Southwest, they had 100 pedicabs with 10 of them having containers with Texas barbecue. Another year at South by Southwest, they did a collab with Tesla. There's a tweet there from March 9, 2013 with Elon and Travis Kalanick as well. But they were fighting the taxi companies and battling city officials in many cities. Here's Travis. When you read about the crazy stuff we're doing in the cities, know that it is corrupt out there. Know that we are highly, highly disruptive. And what you read in the papers isn't always true. And the bottom line is that in order to be in this business, in order to be this disruptive, that's what's going on. You have to be willing to fight. On one occasion, DC was going to put up a floor on Uber's prices, essentially making them five times more expensive than taxis. So Uber rallied their drivers and riders. 18 hours later, we had 50,000 original emails. Those weren't robo-emails that went to city council people telling them not to vote for it. 37,000 tweets, 104 million social media impressions. And we won. And for context, taxis were a problem in many cities. In New York City, for example, there were around 13,250 taxis in the 1940s. And by this time in 2012, that number hadn't really changed. That's absolutely crazy. Uber had a better solution, and in 2013, Travis landed a huge investment to help his solution scale even more. Google Ventures By January 2013, Uber has 170 employees, and they're expecting to grow that to 800 to 900 by the end of the year. Then Travis lands a massive investment in August 2013, with Google Ventures making its biggest investment to date, nearly $258 million, and Uber raising more than $360 million in total in a round that also included TPG and Benchmark. By late 2013, their revenue cut would be more than $200 million, with these leaked metrics becoming public and Uber taking a roughly 20% cut of revenue. And you can see the metrics online at justforgrind.com. There's a graph there as well. Things were going well for Travis and Uber, but 2014 would be a rough year in the press for them. Reputation hit. By March 2014, Uber was growing 20% month over month, and they are in 80 cities around the world. One of the things slowing down growth, the number of cars on the road. They needed more, so they offered vehicle financing to get more drivers on the road. They would ultimately discontinue the program in 2017 because too many drivers were struggling to keep up with the monthly payments, but it shows just how they were willing to try anything to grow. Also, because of pricing, they started to compete with public transportation. We are getting to a point, because of our fare splitting features, because we keep pushing the price down, because of the efficiencies, we're getting to a point where we're starting to compete with public transportation on cost and quality. Travis is a big fan of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and you can see that with what his approach was to building Uber, looking for efficiencies, bringing the price down, dominating a market. From a business perspective, it was all working. Uber also made a couple of key hires around this time. One was David Pluff, a former Obama campaign manager who was brought in to help them lobby for change, further aiding expansion efforts. Another was Ben Metcalf, an engineer who, along with his team, created a system to aid Uber riders and drivers in lobbying for Uber to exist in their cities. 
The system helped them efficiently contact city and state officials, something that worked wonders in a number of cities. Travis was asked about this success at the time and how it compared to his time spent building Red Swoosh and Scour. And here's Travis. People ask me, it's going so well now, doesn't it feel great? And my approach to things is I'm pushing always to a point of discomfort to such a degree that I'm a little nervous. I'm sweating a little bit. And that means I'm always feeling like we did 15 years ago. So for me, it doesn't feel different. It feels the same. The only difference, and it's a big one, is when you're not hearing 100 no's a day for six years straight, it's a little better. I was hardcore, and I have to admit, it's a little more fun when you do see product market fit, and you can feel it get out there, and you can watch it grow. There's something truly satisfying about that. But it wasn't all rosy either with Uber. In 2014, a series of shitstorms hit the company. From Boober, with Travis commenting on his skyrocketing desirability with women in a GQ interview, to journalist Sarah Lacey writing about deleting Uber because of its asshole culture, to Emil Michael threatening a smear campaign against journalists, and finally, an incident at an escort bar in Korea with Uber employees. It was a lot. And it was a nightmare. Travis was asked at the 2014 TechCrunch Disrupt why the press was so hard on him, and he thought it was important for people to understand why he is how he is. My last company, I started in January 2001. It was a networking software company. In the first four years, I didn't make a salary. It was tough. One of those years, I was at my parents' house. Ran out of money. It was six and a half years all in until we ultimately got acquired. We ran out of money multiple times. And when you're scrapping that hard, it requires you to be abnormally perfectionist, abnormally fierce, because that last inch is the difference between living at mom's one more year or essentially being poor. That last inch is the difference between epic failure and making something happen, pulling a rabbit out of your hat. So when you go from that scrappy, fierce thing to something like Uber with product market fit, and the whole thing just sort of works in a way that's unnatural, if you bring the scrappy fierceness with you and it works until you get big and when you get big, being scrappy like that and being perfectionist and really pushing all the way feels uncomfortable. Of course, running a big company and a small startup are two very different things. As Travis would say, you're not allowed to be scrappy and fierce as the big guy versus the little guy. Another challenge on the PR front for Uber was its surge pricing. Here is Travis's response when asked about it. Our goal is to get the cheapest ride possible. Why? Because we are trying to become a mainstay in the transportation space. You don't do that by charging more than you have to. But if you don't have an option, we're losing because then we are the same as the taxi companies. We need to provide a reliable ride when you can't get one. Yes, it makes for really bad press headlines. But at the end of the day, there are thousands or tens of thousands of people every Friday and Saturday night who got a ride who otherwise wouldn't. They also provided an option to send a notification to be told when surge pricing comes back down to 1x. It often happens after 15 to 20 minutes. Not only was Travis dealing with his own mistakes and press blunders, he was battling a competitor, Lyft. Lyft, Apple, and China. Uber, in keeping up with the unrelenting ambition of Travis, kept expanding its offerings, announcing Uber Pool in August 2014, days before its competitor, Lyft, announced a similar offering. By late 2015, half of the ride requests they got in SF are for Uber Pool. 
The two companies would be fiercely competitive, with Uber clearly winning, but Lyft proving more than a little annoying. Here's a New York Times article. They spent much of their energy one-upping rivals like Lyft. Uber devoted teams to so-called competitive intelligence, purchasing data from an analytics service called Slice Intelligence. Using an email digest service it owns, named Unroll.me, Slice collected its customers' emailed Lyft receipts from their inboxes and sold the anonymized data to Uber. Uber used the data as a proxy for the health of Lyft's business. Lyft, too, operates a competitive intelligence team. Uber also tried to win over Lyft's drivers. Uber's driver satisfaction rating, an internal metric, has dropped since February 2016, and roughly a quarter of its drivers turn over on average every three months. According to an internal slide deck on drivers' income levels viewed by the New York Times, Uber considered Lyft and McDonald's its main competition for attracting new drivers. To frustrate Lyft drivers, Uber dispatched some employees to order and cancel Lyft rides in mass. Others hailed Lyfts and spent the rides persuading drivers to switch to Uber full-time. Uber had the opportunity to buy Lyft, ending the battle, but didn't make it happen. A story in the New York Times mentioned it. That year, Uber came close to buying Lyft. At a meeting at Mr. Kalanick's house and over cartons of Chinese food, he and Mr. Michael hosted Lyft's president, John Zimmer, who asked for 15% of Uber in exchange for selling Lyft. Over the next hour, Mr. Kalanick and Mr. Michael repeatedly laughed at Mr. Zimmer's audacious request. No deal was reached. Lyft declined to comment. The next year, Travis had even bigger concerns, a potential ban from Apple. Early in 2015, Travis was called in to meet with Tim Cook from Apple. Uber was identifying and tagging iPhones, even after the app was deleted, and this violated Apple's privacy guidelines. They had been doing it for months, but it finally caught up with them. Why do that in the first place? China. More specifically, rampant account fraud in China, where drivers were being offered incentives and taking advantage of them by creating dozens of fake email addresses and using multiple iPhones to make money on each trip. By fingerprinting the iPhones, Uber could fix the problem, but in doing so, it broke Apple's rules. Travis made it through this meeting with Tim and Uber was allowed to stay in the App Store, but in 2016, they pulled out of China after battling another competitor. DD and burning billions of dollars to do so. It was a massive hit for Travis, especially given the potential that China represented for Uber as far as growth. Of course, Travis pushed on, but the next year would be his toughest yet. Leaving Uber. By March 2016, Uber had gone from 400 to 6,500 employees in the previous two and a half years, fueled by Travis's thirst for growth. An April 2017 article in the New York Times described Travis's drive. Crossing that line was not a one-off for Mr. Kalanick. According to interviews with more than 50 current and former Uber employees, investors, and others with whom the executive had personal relationships, Mr. Kalanick, 40, is driven to the point that he must win at whatever he puts his mind to and at whatever cost a trait that has now plunged Uber into its most sustained set of crises since its founding in 2009. Mark Cuban, the billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, who invested in Travis's previous company but passed on Uber in 2010, also described the duality of his drive. Travis's biggest strength is that he will run through a wall to accomplish his goals. Travis's biggest weakness is that he will run through a wall to accomplish his goals. That's the best way to describe him. 
The drive to win also culminated in the creation of Grayball, a tool Uber used to trick city officials, but that it defended with a statement that said the program denies ride requests to fraudulent users who are violating our terms of service. Whether that's people aiming to physically harm drivers, competitors looking to disrupt our operations, or opponents who collude with officials on secret stings meant to entrap drivers. And those crises that the New York Times mentioned, they included the Delete Uber movement, Susan Fowler's blog post detailing the sexism and terrible work cultures she experienced during her time working for Uber, and a video that showed Travis berating an Uber driver. Travis did make changes in 2017, working to improve the workplace culture at Uber, as well as his own actions, but it was too little, too late. The public opinion on Uber had soured, the mistakes had piled up, and Uber's investors wanted Travis out. To make things even worse, in May 2017, Travis's parents were in a boating accident and, tragically, his mom was killed. On June 13th, 2017, Travis took a leave of absence from Uber, and by June 21st, 2017, he was forced to resign, ending his reign as CEO of the company he co-founded eight years before. Post-Uber After leaving Uber, Travis launched a venture fund called 10100. There's a tweet about it from March 20th, 2018 that I have linked here as well. With his drive and ambition, it's not surprising he's keeping busy. Though there hasn't been a lot of news about him specifically in the last few years. Given the absolute thrashing he took in the press for years, I can imagine he'd mostly like to stay out of the limelight. By investing $150 million in city storage systems, the parent company, Cloud Kitchens, has mostly been able to operate in stealth. It is known, however, that they've raised more than a billion dollars of venture capital to fund their growth, with Travis investing around $300 million into the company. At the end of 2019, after the Uber IPO, Travis stepped down from the Uber board directors and sold the last of his shares, with his last ties to the company officially gone. I have to admit, I admire his ambition and commitment to Uber for so long, though I obviously disapprove of many other things, and think this quote from Vanity Fair illustrates that commitment he had. For all his rough edges, Kalanick's commitment to his company is almost tender at times. When he is asked if he will sell Uber to a bigger player, such as Google, he seems genuinely shocked. You're asking somebody who has a wife and is really happily married, so what's your next wife going to be like? And I'm like, what? Travis Kalanick's wisdom. I'm becoming an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur or not is actually about finding yourself. And actually, it's not even about being an entrepreneur. It's about whatever you do in life. If you're going to spend half of your waking hours and more doing something, you should believe in it with your heart. And just the only way you can do that is to know who you are. Once you know who you are, have a vision for how you want to work, how you want to spend that part of your life, a philosophy for work. And then you just go do it. And you start every day and you learn stuff as you go. And that's the thing. On innovation, you want to focus, but you want to innovate. So then the question is, how well are you managing the main line of your business and how capable are you of going into new lines on making decisions? I don't believe that you can make decisions or anything without having all of the details. And so anytime I'm making a decision in the day, it's when I have all the important details on the thing that I'm deciding on. Now, 
When you have a team of 5,000 people, that means there's a lot of decisions you're not looking at. And so you have to prioritize. What are the problems you want to solve? What are the decisions that are coming to my desk? But then have a culture of mass creative problem solving, where in any room at Uber, the person that's making the decision must have all the details. And if they don't, or they don't have the time to get them, they must delegate that decision to somebody else. And so I don't want to be in a place where I'm not getting the details, because then that's a place where I'm not solving any problems. I'm potentially taking Uber public back in 2014. Sometimes people get attached to an outcome, like, oh, I'm going to go public. Oh, I'm going to be a millionaire. And then you get there and you realize it ain't all that. What you want to do is do something you just enjoy every day and the outcome doesn't matter. And that's the only way to do it, especially when you're hearing a hundred no's a day. You've got to enjoy what you're doing and what you're building. You've got to be passionate about creating something. And for me, it's not about IPO. I don't even think about it. And finally, on how he approaches his day. When I go to work in the morning, I have two lists. One is, what are all the crazy, effed up, awesome problems that I can solve? And what is all the crazy, awesome shit that I can invent? And they're ranked. And I start at the top and I work my way down. And stuff happens in the day and you insert and you got a new list. That's Travis Kalanick, co-founder of Uber. Thanks for listening.